I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and we try to get to know the person behind the stories and to know more about their work. Our guest today is Lauren Lando. He is the South African Research Chair in Human Mobility and Politics of Difference at the University of Witwatersrand, and he's also the founding director of the Center for Migration and Society at that university. Last year, he held the chair in Migration Studies at the Fletcher School. Welcome, Lauren, to Profiles. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. We have a topic today that cuts across so many world areas, from Mexico to Syria, from sub-Saharan Africa to the Pope. We're talking largely today about illegal immigration. That's a major topic of concern to all of us. I wonder if we might begin by talking a little bit about the very concept of illegal migration. We talk about refugees and we talk about migrants. Is there a difference? It's a very good question, and it depends on what perspective you take. From the view of states, these distinctions are extremely important. Who's coming in? what the reasons for coming, what they're going to do, what obligations do we owe to them. But I think as the world becomes sort of more integrated through trade, through people's movements, through the exchange of, of information and ideas, it's becoming increasingly difficult to say why someone moves, what they're trying to do, what is the sort of normative obligations that citizens have to the outsider, but also what states must do. And I think that... Uh, that distinction that held that a refugee could be clearly discerned from a, a, anyone else, I think is hard to, 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 to go with now. And if we look at the people coming out of Syria, coming across uh, the Sahara through North Africa into Europe, or coming across the borders uh, into the United States, they're coming from very poor places. They're coming from places that don't offer them much or their children much in the way of a, of a life. Are they refugees? What are the, They're clearly fleeing something but it may not be the political persecution or violence that would count them as refugees. It's interesting to me that your life's work has been focusing on this. How does someone from Corvallis, Oregon, end up in South Africa dealing with illegal migration? Well, I think that most academics will find some degree of autobiography in their in their work. And, and Although I grew up in a very quiet, middle-class area in Oregon, my parents and grandparents very much lived an immigrant experience. Uh, my grandparents, victims of Stalin, the rise of, of Hitler in Germany, coming to the United States. And I think these questions of, of displacement, of why people move, very much part of our family's history. And, and growing up in Oregon as, as with parents who always claimed to be from New York and never really accepted the pine trees and, and the mountains, also gave me a sense of, of being somewhere in between, of being an insider, obviously from there, a citizen with all of the rights, but also not fully of, of the place. And I think those interests of, of that experience of movement, of um, claiming a space somewhere else, of making a new life, has continued to occupy me. That doesn't explain how I got to Africa, of course. And, and there, I think it was 
to some extent, to get as far away from Corvallis as, as possible. And I, in that regard, I'm, I consider my life an enormous success. Uh, whether my work or not is, is well-received, at least I've, I've, I've seen the world. My interest really is, again, in these questions of, of how different sorts of people come together and are made into communities. And I guess that's what drove me to studying Africa, whereas the nationalism and the creation of citizens uh, is an ongoing process everywhere. In Africa, where you have much newer states, very divided states, huge ethnic diversity, huge linguistic diversity, religious diversity, the way those groups come together and the way that creates conflict or displacement is something that has fascinated me. So where did you study before going to the University of the Witwatersrand? <laughs> where did you do your undergraduate? My undergraduate was done in Seattle at the University of, of Washington. Oh, it's a great university. It was a great university uh, with almost no one studying Africa. And, and if there is another reason that I got into the field, it was that, in part because no one was going to be able to tell me what to look at or how to look at it. Uh, I studied with a, a great scholar, Daniel Lev, a great yes. scholar of, of Southeast Asia, interested in very similar issues, human rights, kind of nationalism, but in a quite different context. And I think under his guidance, was able to, to sort of begin my studies. And then you went off to Berkeley. Then I went off to the LSE in, in London. Oh, you went to London. I did That's a development right, studies degree, um, spent a lot of money in the British pubs, and then yeah. didn't learn a whole lot and uh, came back to the United States and, and continued doing my And did PhD. a thesis on Tanzania. Yeah, my PhD thesis was was looking at the effects of immigrants, uh, mainly refugees, and humanitarian aid on Western Tanzania and the way in which the millions of dollars of aid flowing into a very poor area have reshaped the the politics of that space. Let's talk a bit about the broad phenomenon Mm -hmm. of illegal migration. It's not a new phenomenon. It's as old as history, isn't it? Well, migration, of course, is part of the human condition. Uh, We just... You know, in South Africa, just discovered some of our hominid ancestors. You know, we all started yeah. down there and moved to somewhere else. Movements only became illegal, of course, once state borders exactly. uh, became firm. And, and work by John Torpy and, and others, kind of historical sociology, really highlight what a recent phenomenon that is. Exactly. Right? That, in, you know, in the age of empire, whether it was Byzantine or Roman, or people moved. There were obviously, it wasn't always easy. But this idea that someone was illegal uh, was, was, is, a, is a relatively new concept. You wouldn't think of Ellis Island and the tired and poor and huddled masses as illegal migrants or immigrants. No, I mean, we, we wouldn't consider them that. They're coming through in a very orderly, if, if not entirely dignified yeah. way. Um, but of course, at that point, you had the United States making a very strong rationing of who could come in and who couldn't. Uh, and they had the power to enforce that. I think yeah. as states become more integrated, the ability of governments to control the movements of people is harder. And as a result, in somehow it's created a sense of moral panic that we're losing control, even if it is what we're witnessing is actually quite a natural process. Let's talk about some of the biases, maybe. Whether it's Europe, whether it's the United States, whether it's South Africa... Worries are raised. We'll be swamped by aliens. Our economies will be burdened. Social benefits will be out of sight. We have anti-immigrant parties emerging. And we talk about building walls. 
Yeah, I, there was a, a study done by the United Nations Development Program in 2009 in which they looked at migration as a sort of global development issue and it's, a, it's an impact on economies, on poverty. And one of the findings from that report that struck with me most firmly is that in countries where the states or governments provide the most rights, the restrictions on immigration are most severe in part because there's so much more at stake. Mm -hmm. And so Europe, which, especially compared to the United States, very strongly social democratic, where citizenship and membership not only entitles you to work, as it does in the United States, but to a whole suite of, of benefits uh, and kind of cultural rights, I think there is there's a lot at stake. That said, obviously the, the kind of biases and fear are overstated, the numbers are significant. We don't want to deny that. But if you look at the number of immigrants coming into Europe now, even during the midst of this crisis, it's something um, quite minuscule compared to the number of immigrants that have, for example, gone into much poorer countries like Lebanon or Jordan, sure. where almost 20% of their populations are now refugees. So if the worry should be anywhere, it will be in those places. Europe has the resources. And perhaps more importantly, uh, they need the labor. Exactly. So then the question is just how do you manage it in a way that is systematic, fair, protects everyone's interest, and doesn't uh, rile up the population? And we tend to forget that societies have been enriched by migrants. I think of the post-World War II phenomenon in the mm. United States. I think of this university with people who came here. I mean, the American Academy, whether it's in the natural sciences or in the social sciences, um, wouldn't be what it is without immigrants. I mean, we from Einstein to Hannah Arendt, you know, exactly. th these are the, the sort of unfortunate benefits that come from conflict and, and persecution. And the dynamism of immigrants everywhere, I think, has been over time repeatedly demonstrated. People who move, it's only about 3% of the world's population that crosses an international border to go live somewhere else. But those people are disproportionately entrepreneurial, hardworking, and invest very heavily in their families and often in the communities where they but live. But it's never quite been at the scale we're seeing now. It's this great movement from countries in chaos mm. or in poverty or where life is nasty and brutish mm. and short to the wealthy and peaceful. And we are seeing larger numbers now in terms of this. And the fear is of the profound burden. Mm. But in a sense, that fear might not be justified, right? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of ways I would want to respond to that. I mean, one is, well, the numbers coming into North America, Australia, Europe have gone up. Still, the vast majority of people who move do so within their region. So South Africa, for example, has been until very recently, the country that has received the largest number of refugee applications of any country in the world. It's not the poorest country, but it's not as wealthy as um, a France, Germany, or yeah. United States. That said, I mean, people are going to move. And as the global economy concentrates wealth in certain areas and shifts it out of other areas, people will follow those resources. And I think if, if we're going to look at a, a world, not this, just just, but one that actually functions, you're going to need to bring that labor in to the areas where production is happening, where 
things are being developed and, and resources are needed, not just labor, but um, skills and insight. And the way in which we manage movement based on, on states is somewhat out of, uh, it's not calibrated with the way in which the global economy actually works. Of course, there are distinctions. There are economic migrants and mm-hmm. political migrants. And there is a difference between them. There is. I mean, there are people who are fleeing because of overt persecution for their ideas, for their religious beliefs, for their sexuality. And there are those who will move for purely economic reasons, to try to better their own lives or create life chances for their families. But those boundaries often blur. If we take a country like Zimbabwe, you can grow up in an area and belong to an ethnic group which is not aligned with the, with the president. No food aid, no investment comes to your area. The people there may not feel politically persecuted. They may move for economic reasons. But the source of their economic woes is political. And so that, that distinction, while the, at either end of the spectrum, can be quite clear. Somewhere in the middle, it gets much more muddled up. How do you handle the accusation that this is a new wave with potential dangers of extremism in terms of ISIS, in terms of other organizations, that some of the people infiltrating might indeed, in quotes, end up being terrorists within Mm. the societies in which they move. Well, I don't think we can deny that's the possibility. I wouldn't argue that that is a new thing to go with immigrants. If we look at any of Martin Scorsese's movies about uh, New York, uh, the fact that uh, immigrants might bring with them forms of organized criminal activity, whether it's purely criminal or or ideological in terms of the mafia, I think is is quite... um, Or look at the IRA, you know, in in Boston. There's... Immigrants will be in their political actors and, and even refugees who we often see as these kind of pure victims, often are coming from areas where they're highly politicized. What we do know, though, is that treating immigrants like suspects, treating them as if they're guilty by association because of their nationality, their origin, their religion, is not likely to bring them onto our side. And what we've seen in in the slums or other areas where people are excluded or in the banlieues of, of Paris it's precisely the kinds of exclusion and police harassment and um, treating these people as if they're second-class citizens that radicalizes them. People coming out of Minnesota or others, Somalis who've been there for a generation, who feel that they've not been accepted, will tend to then turn to more radical means. Talking about this, the UN Convention on Refugees of 1951, mm. there are a lot of signatories Does it mean anything? There's been a lot of debate uh, within people who study refugees, within people who work in those areas, about the convention and its strengths and its weaknesses. International law, of course, has multiple roles. The convention remains an important symbolic gesture, I think, across the world, that states have committed to this. They have granted refugees' rights. There is the idea that we all owe as, as citizens some obligation to others um, from other countries because of the, the problems that they've, that they've faced. It is, however, 
I think, an extremely limited document. Uh, and given the kinds of migration, the kind of wars that we're seeing, the kind of conflicts, the kind of deprivation, it's less and less applicable. It still works for some, but the people have struggled. What happens if your country is going to be submerged with water, as in the Maldives? Those people will not be entitled to refugee status, but clearly they have to move. Uh, similarly, if countries where you are in northern Uganda, where it's the Lord's Resistance Army that is attacking you and not the state, the legal ambiguities over whether those people have could find protection in their own countries or not, I think, need to be debated. It needs to be a, a living document. Right. Um, but the fear is by opening it up for discussion, we end up with something even worse. What about the UN Commission for Human Rights? Um, Prince Said mm. of Jordan, who paid a visit to us a while back when he was ambassador to Washington, to the, to the United Nations, um, is now heading this. It must be a thankless task. I think it, ha- it must be a thankless task. Uh, I remember having a conversation with, with the former commissioner, Navi Pile, yes. soon after she came back to South Africa. Right. And I think she's spent her life struggling. Uh, she was a, one of the first Indian women lawyers, if not the first in, in the country, uh, a very tireless advocate. And I think that's what's required. But she would be the first to tell you that the work that she's able to do is very limited. Uh, and in, I think in, along with whether it's clergy from any of the um, sort of faiths or activists of any of the community, they know they're not going to win. But the world would be worse if they, if they stopped making so much noise. I'm Patrick O'Mara, and this is Profiles. Our guest today is Lauren Lando, specialist on illegal immigration. Lauren, we've been talking about some interesting phenomena. Let's try and put a little more substance to the Syrian crisis for our listeners. It's a tragic set of images, isn't it? Boats that don't get to safety, horrendous refugee camps, uncertainty, large numbers being denied access to countries like Hungary, and the tragedy of seeing families walking desperately to try and find a haven. It's a big moral issue, isn't it? It raises... I mean, obviously, you see those images and people would have to be almost heartless not to respond and not to feel some sense of a need to to help. Of course, these sorts of crises, the kind of deprivation and, and denigration that those people have faced are not a new thing. I mean, whether it's the genocide in, in Rwanda or the conflict in Bosnia, all of which have d- displaced hundreds of thousands who faced similar, if not worse, conditions. I think that the challenge now is that these people have pushed this sort of poverty, this kind of, 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 of sort of limited rights of, of kind of suffering into Europe and into Europe at a time when itself is, is going through an existential crisis over Greece, over the, mm-hmm. you know, the future of the euro, what's going to happen there. And it's that kind of combining of... of the crisis, the ongoing crisis and intractable crisis in Syria with Europe's real self-doubt that I think has helped to produce this, this moral panic, this crisis 
that has, has really captured the world and, and brought in not just issues of the rights of migrants, but really strong questioning of what is Europe, what does it mean to be a Democrat and be xenophobic and exclusive. Mm-hmm. Well, let's think about these people crossing the world. Are the Syrian and Afghani and Iraqis who try to get into Europe different from the sub-Saharan African migrants who move up and try to get on rafts and boats crossing into Spain? Is there a difference between these? Mm. We talked about economic and political migrants. How do you see it? Well, at one level, almost everyone who moves uh, shares some essential characteristics, which is despite whatever nasty conditions they're coming out of, is really a sense that through their own agency, they can do something that's better for themselves, for their families, for their communities, for the places where they're going to end up. And so in that sense, I think we we do see a very strong commonality among even the most desperate refugees, the sense that by moving, things can be made better. It's always a choice to move. It's always a choice to choose to decide where you're going to go. That said, what we see coming out of his, I mean, over the last 10 years out of Iraq, out of a lot of these sort of countries, Syria, is a group of people who are often more middle class, more educated, exactly, uh, who have had more stable lives. If you look at the resources that they're using simply to get to Europe, paying thousands of dollars to smugglers to get them across borders, to get them on a rickety boat to take them across the Mediterranean... These are people who who've left with some resources. Much has been lost, um, but can certainly come and contribute. The Africans from sub-Saharan Africa who get there, make it that far, are also a, a sort of special breed, if you will. Most people will stay locally. Most people will try to find something in a, in a nearby city or a nearby country. These are an extraordinarily ambitious group of people, maybe without the benefits of education or training that come with being middle class or living in a middle-income country. But they may be of a, of a different type. Mm-hmm. That said, we still need to treat them with the kind of dignity that you'd, you'd expect to be treated if you were in a similar condition. You're implying that the phenomenon of the migrant is a universal. The causation might be different. The causation in the terms of Syria might be a crisis that descended on them perhaps in which Western nations were complicit. Mm. The crisis with North Africa might be much more profound in some ways because it's a crisis of development, a crisis of need. And in both cases, the solutions transcend the particular societies, Mm. don't they? Yeah, I mean, migration and how we address migration is one of these issues like the environment, like others, that need a global approach. Um, as the spaces become more integrated, countries become more integrated, we see a number of processes, whether it's resource extraction or production or movement of people, which transcend jurisdictions. And they do so in a way that now means that they're in a, a legal limbo or a sort yeah. of black hole. Uh, And I think migration is not something that's going to go away. It is intrinsic to society. Those of us who grew up in the United States have the benefit of being able to move enormously within our own country. If you come from a small country, you don't have those options. There's one city, one place where you could work, and if you can't find work there, you're out of luck. 
We move a lot. That's part of why the United States economy is so di- has been dynamic and recovered from crises in the past. I think the movements of people across Europe are a way of mitigating some of the risks, whether it's economic, whether it's political. But we do need to find a way of addressing it so that both host states and migrants themselves uh, can can live together with in some kind of dignity. It's interesting to me that even if it's the case of the migrants from Syria or the case of the migrants from Africa, that there are networks that exist. Mm. They're not just individuals in many cases. They have connections. They have family or friends. It always strikes me as if there seems to be a goal Mm. to which they're moving. Or am I mistaken with that? Well, I think that we see what in in the literature is, of course, called chain migration. Yes, exactly. The the reason we see odd sort of groups of Hmong refugees in, in rural Montana or whatever is because someone went there first and figured out that they could make it uh, and helped others uh, to come. It's not a place that I, I would guess most people in Vietnam had ever heard of, but uh, they ended up there. I think what we're seeing across Europe is, is once someone comes in, that family, that aspiration is shared. They want others in their family to benefit and, and will help them uh, to do so. That seems like a natural thing, and I, right. I will continue to drive migration. Of course, the final irony in all of this is there's really no legal way mm. that, despite the fact that they're families, the, despite mm. the fact that they're connections, the illegality of the whole process must be very, very disturbing. Uh, I mean, I, in, in many countries, you see that there is a, I mean, in the United States has been laudable for this, some notion of family reunification, where if you're there and you become a citizen or a legal resident, it's acceptable to bring in members of your immediate family. The challenge, of course, is that definition of the family is very narrow. Uh, you have to prove kind of very strict biological or legal tie to the person, whereas across much of the world, the extended family well, is much more extended, uh, and people rely on that extended family for support, for social right. reproduction, um, for economic activity. And by not allowing them to move, we do. We make these people permanently vulnerable. What about situations in Asia? The Rohingya from mm. Myanmar. Mm. That's that's a serious situation, isn't it, in its yeah, way? Yeah, whether it's the Rohingya, whether it's the, the Uyghurs, these other groups. Yeah, the Uyghurs as well. And I think what we see in these areas is some of that ambiguity and some of the continued, let's say, the, the reverberations of various forms of nation-state building that right. have not been able to incorporate minorities. The United States and other liberal democracies, at least rhetorically, we have the language to allow people to move in. If you have a, a Chinese identity, which is much more focused on a, a Han uh, idea of, of where Islam doesn't fit, it's difficult. The Rohingyas similarly don't fit politically or culturally within, you know, with, within their communities. These are, are sort of leftovers from a previous age, and we still have yet to figure out what to do with them. It's an issue that we deal with every day. What are you going to tell Donald Trump about his war? <laughs> well, I mean, I, the, we were having a discussion yesterday about whether his wall could be a, at least see it as an enormous public arts project because it will undoubtedly be covered with graffiti and decorated. Yeah. 
what walls, whether it's the, the wall in Israel or Fortress Europe and wall that's been built effectively in the Mediterranean or the wall that the United States has spent billions already to construct along the border with Mexico, is that restrictions breed criminality and illegality. Uh, and that while there may be justification for patrolling the areas for some level of security to prevent you know, countries being overrun, the more restrictions you put, the more sophisticated the uh, smugglers and traffickers and migrants themselves will become in evading it. And if what you want is more narco-trafficking, if what you want is more violence, more people dying in the desert, then the wall is exactly what you should be doing. And of course, the intangible walls of prejudice and bias Mm. and fear are probably more significant than the walls made of concrete or barbed wire. Right, and people like Donald Trump and right-wing politicians in Europe have have become extremely adept at building those walls. I think we might take a break. I'd be delighted. Um, Would you like Paul Simon? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, there's this song that's always haunted me, uh, the American tune. He borrowed some of the song from Bach, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of nostalgia for an America that at that time, writing in the 60s, I guess, was felt was already slipping away. And there's, there's powerful references to immigration, to the American dream. Um, and it's a beautiful song. And also to South Africa with Paul Simon. Paul Simon also has a, a strong relationship, contentious one, but a, right. a, a strong relationship so. with, with South Africa and popularizing um, some very excellent South African music. Many's the time I've been mistaken And many times confused Yes, and I've often felt forsaken And certainly misused Oh, but I'm all right I'm all right Just weary to my bones Still, you don't expect to be bright And born vivant so far away from home So far away from home I'm Patrick O'Mara. Welcome to Profiles. Our guest today is Lauren Lando, specialist on migration and illegal migration. Lauren, I'm delighted that we've been able to chat about other world areas But one of the primary areas of interest for you is South Africa. Let's talk a bit about South Africa. It's a country that has gone through remarkable changes since 1994. Let's talk about that as background first. Right. I mean, many of us will have grown up with images of burning tires uh, in, in parts of Soweto across the country and then of the triumphant release of Nelson Mandela in the early 1990s, him walking with his then-wife, Winnie, out of of prison in in Cape Town. Since then, the country has tried to come to terms with the damage that was done to it, first through the colonial and imperial enterprise, and then, of course, through the horrors of of apartheid. There are signs, of course, of, of remarkable progress. It has a constitution that is the envy of 
progressives world over. It has uh, a art scene, literature, a kind of social dynamism, which I think has been extraordinary. What it hasn't managed to do is overcome the extraordinary patterns of, of racialized economic exclusion. And even though the, you have a, a sort of African or black government that's been in charge, a government that came to power with a very strong redistributive agenda and mandate to share the wealth of the country, of its mines, of its gold, of its diamonds. We're seeing that inequality has grown in the country. Unemployment among the, the country's black majority is somewhere between 35 and 40 percent. People are not seeing pathways out of poverty. Instead, we're looking at a, a kind of general malaise. The ruling party has is at least being seen as increasingly corrupt and in a, unable to guide the country out of its current problems. And the results have been widespread protest, continued violence and crime. Uh, and some of that crime and some of that violence has been aimed also at immigrants. Mm -hmm. Let's go back in history a bit. When I think of South Africa, I think of all of these incongruous terms that applied to people's lives, the pass laws, the notion of natives, in quotes, mm. who were foreign natives, who people within the country coming in illegally into cities, the notion of alienation, of people being moved away from the main cities within 72 hours because they didn't have documentation. So this idea of legality and illegality permeated the society, didn't it, on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, what you see is a very spatialized social order where whatever was there before had been largely disrupted and, and with mass displacement of people off ancestral lands and into what are homelands. Not all that different in some ways from the American reservations yeah. for, for the indigenous people here. But I think on top of that, instead, it's not only that you had people, black South Africans, put into these homelands, given restrictions on where they could go in their own country, where they could work, who they could date, who they could speak to. Yeah. You also had a long history of migration and very regulated labor migration from the region, in part because the white government didn't want to empower its own citizens. Exactly. They brought in labor from elsewhere on the continent to work in the mines, primarily also in agriculture, and then sent them home. So a kind of guest worker program similar yeah. to the Bracero program here. Including but from the adjacent countries. Mainly from, from Malawi, course, yeah. from Mozambique. Mozambique, from what was Rhodesia, yes. then Zimbabwe. And what you saw is, is a kind of, a, that was highly regulated, but where foreigners historically have also been seen as a threat to black yeah. economic empowerment, yeah. to black power. And I, some of those ambiguities uh, and anxieties have, have continued. So let's talk a little bit about the context. Here was this great promise, and you were referring to all of this openness, the Freedom Charter, mm -hmm. the wonderful constitution of South Africa. That's all very real still. It's just not working as well as we'd <laughs> all hoped. But we add to that the additional problem that economic progress has not been as expected. The unemployment rate mm -hmm. among young black males in urban areas probably, what's it, up to almost 40%. Mm. So let's use that as the base of a discussion. 
of illegal immigrants. Mm. So there's a country of promise. There's a country with some economic vitality still and a lot of freedom still that didn't exist in the past. And then the contradictions of things that are not really working. Yeah, I think for South Africa, well, for people across the African continent, and even we're seeing people from China, from India, from, from Bangladesh, South Africa represents a place of promise. It is a middle-income country. It's the only middle-income country in sub-Saharan Africa. Its GDP, the GDP of just the province where I live, is something like 10 or 15 percent of the continent's yeah. GDP. So while the wealth is not spread equally and opportunities are not equal by any means, there is money. There is an opportunity, especially if you have skills, if you're hardworking, you're entrepreneurial. Many of the immigrants who come have precisely those skills. And part of the challenge is that the black South African population was intentionally kept uneducated or undereducated. Under apartheid. Under apartheid. And is not equipped in many cases. They don't live near where the jobs are. They don't have the skills. They don't have the experience in their families of entrepreneurialism, of shopkeeping, of, of professional work, because all of those opportunities were denied to them. So they have not been in a position, many of them, to capitalize on the opportunities that are there. Whereas immigrants from other countries who, if you grew up in Congo, that's what you do. You hustle. You know, mm -hmm. you learn how to, to make things exactly. if you're from Kenya. And they've come and they've done that. Uh, and understandably, there's considerable resentment. Obviously, get, as in the United States, getting rid of foreigners is not going to get them jobs. But the tensions uh, still remain. And of course, we must add to this, just as Germany has been a major economic power in a lot of the adjacent countries that are poorer, mm -hmm. Mercedes-Benzes, all kinds of other medical products, Germany's strength has come from its exports to some of the poorer nations. Mm -hmm. And also South Africa is a powerhouse in terms of many of the adjacent countries, in terms of products, in terms of food, in terms of all kinds of commodities, mm -hmm. that it is an economic regional power. And so we have to realize it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Absolutely. It is a, it is a rich country. Uh, it's heavily invested. It's a relatively rich country, let's put it that way. It's, yes. it's heavily invested not only in the neighboring countries. I mean, when South African breweries bought Miller, exactly. it was a, a great exactly. triumph for yes. South Africa, um, probably even bigger than winning the Rugby World Cup. Yeah. You know, and, and it is a, a place of promise, and South Africa is struggling with its position on the continent. Because on one hand, they very much want to be seen as uh, the leader, the moral leader, the economic leader of the country. And yet their treatment of immigrants and Africans who've come to live in South Africa has tarnished the reputation and we're starting to see is tarnishing their ability to do business in countries, especially like Nigeria, yeah. now the largest economy on the continent, right. on aggregate anyway, uh, or in neighboring countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe, where the South Africa is seen as an imperious imperial power. And yet, ironically, some of these countries were host to the liberation movements uh, in a period when hospitality was needed mm. and aid was needed. Yeah, and not only have hosted the liberation movement, if you look at countries like Mozambique or Zimbabwe or Angola, were directly invaded by South Africa um, or invaded by its proxies and have suffered tremendously. And, and part of their lingering poverty is in part because of their relationship with the apartheid government. Uh, and 
this sort of moral obligation to help those countries, or even the self-interested obligation of trying to create stability and prosperity in the region, hasn't created a, a more open atmosphere within South Africa. You've done a great deal of research on this whole phenomenon. Realistically, what are the numbers now, roughly? I mean, I'm not asking for precise mm. numbers, but what are the numbers? Well, how do you estimate the number of illegals in South African cities particularly? I, I look around the cities mm. and when I visit and I'm seeing all kinds of different groups, Zimbabweans, Nigerians, mm. Everyone Somalis. is in South Africa and people often say that Johannesburg particularly is kind of the New York of Africa where you'll find everyone there with their restaurants and their you know, the, their products and their clothing. But the numbers are not so striking when you look at the statistics. So the country is, is estimated to have about a po- total population of about 50 million. Right. According to the census, which is the best data we have, the number of percentage of those who've been born outside of the country is only about 3%. And Three. that includes all of the South Africans who were born in exile all of the people who've moved there and become nationalized, in addition to undocumented migrants from, from the region. That said, when you pick certain neighborhoods in Johannesburg, in Cape Town, increasingly in some of the smaller cities, 30 or 40 percent of those neighborhoods might be foreign-born. You get these kind of immigrant areas where they go, often quite poor areas where they can afford to move in. And this, I think, has, has given this impression that foreigners are, are everywhere. In many of the townships in the poor areas, you have particularly Somali and Pakistani immigrants who've opened shops. So they become highly visible. Oh, yeah. Targets. And and also become targets, yes. But South Africa is really a divided society. I I think of the wealth Mm. of the white and black middle class suburbs. It's extraordinary. I've never been in a place with as many swimming pools in people's backyards. It's extraordinary. And when I think of the townships, I think of parts of townships I've known, like Kailitsa mm. in, in Cape Town, and the environment there of gang warfare, of problems of leadership, of the difficulties of imposing law and order, mm-hmm. and the, the very ability of policing, almost impossible in some of the townships. Mm. So this really polarized environment into which you now inject this foreign element. Mm. And this foreign element is a different element because many of these people, as you were saying, are hustlers, Mm. maybe better skilled, right? The Zimbabweans presumably are better educated Mm -hmm. in some ways. So that is really the explosive situation for xenophobia, correct? It is. I mean, South Africa is extraordinarily divided, not only rich and poor. Obviously, the racial divisions remain very strong. But even within the black population, among the black poor population, the country has 11 national languages. There's even more that are spoken on the street. At one level, this creates an enormous permeability. You know, it's not a monocultural society. We were talking before about Germany or France, where it's very clear that an immigrant is an outsider. And to some extent, immigrants have, in many instances, blended with the local population. There is intermarriage. There is friendship. But when you have the kind of tensions, when you have leadership struggles ongoing, when you have gangsterism, foreigners or any other group are always there, easily scapegoated, easily targeted. And as the government becomes more and more concerned with its legitimacy among winning the votes of the poor, it has, as with many governments around the world, mobilized that discourse and 
helped to foment uh, sort of discrimination violence as a way of distracting attention yeah. from scapegoat phenomenon. Absolutely, it's an interesting phenomenon. You've written a very interesting. You've you've done a wonderful book, by the way, <laughs> which I should give you a plug for. But Thank you. the edited volume. But I also think a, a paper you talked about indicated that some of these migrants into South Africa are really not that anxious to be integrated and who are retaining identities rather than becoming absorbed into the culture. Yeah, what we see in South Africa is in some ways parallel to the discussions that we've seen in Europe around multiculturalism in which the old model of immigration and integration was that over time people's sort of strong allegiances to their countries, to their religions, to their values would be corroded and they'd become Americans or British or French or whatever. In South Africa, in part because the country itself is so multicultural, people can't, there's not one culture that you could become part of, even if you wanted to. And what we've seen among many migrants is that they look at South African society, they've been treated poorly by the people around them, and they say, look, this is not something we want to be part of. We want to be here. We'll obey the law for the most part. We will work hard. But our lives are elsewhere. Uh, two of my colleagues, Ashil and Ben Serenat, will talk about living a life of multiple elsewheres, where you live in a place, but your imagination of life, of what real life is, is either back home where you're from, right. where you want to go eventually, whether it's the United States or Europe. But it's really not about investing in the place where you are. And this is an odd way of living. It's part of our postmodern condition that we, we live in. But I think it does raise very real questions for what, what do you do with these people? What, what does it mean to be a citizen in a place where 30 40% of, of your neighbors don't really want to be there? And what does the state do about them? You've been intimately involved mm-hmm. in advising some of the commissions and groups in South Africa. And I look at all of these different acts, the Refugee Act of mm-hmm. 1998, the whole Immigration Act, the current debate that's going on. There are some draconian measures that are being implemented in South Africa. Right. I mean, we have been trying to argue at multiple levels, and I think immigration is often seen as something that you deal with at the level of immigration policy. The immigration policy has become extraordinarily draconian. In an effort ostensibly to protect foreigners from violence, the South African government has now through Operation Fiela, which means sweep out the trash, gone around and arrested thousands of immigrants, ostensibly so that they, those who remain will be seen as legal and legitimate. Those sorts of policies are draconian. They're not uh, exclusive to South Africa, of course. We see those sorts of policies elsewhere. But there are room for hope. And we're working closely also with local government and looking at health care, at education, and trying to find ways for immigrants to get in at that level. And I think through that kind of bureaucratic incorporation, there is a way for people to come in. And we've seen it in the United States with sure. New York giving documents to uh, or IDs to, to undocumented migrants or health care people making sure that services are available to everyone. And that's the sort of approach that I think we're, we can, might win. But in the, in the short term, the government has turned harshly against immigrants, taking a cue from Europe, taking a cue from Donald Trump in the United States, uh, and said, look, no more. And they've been horrendous videos and news items of foreigners in South Africa 
being attacked by mobs. Uh, there was a case of a Mozambican tied to the back of a police car and dragged through the townships. It's it's pretty um, horrendous uh, sort of response, isn't it? In some case, is that is that limited? Well, we have to keep in mind South Africa is extraordinarily violent society and, and quite tragically violent. Tell and us a bit more about that. I think the readers, the listeners should know this. Yeah, I think, you know, in the wealthier areas, there's private security, not everywhere, but in many areas, heavily armed machine guns to keep the wealthy safe. Those who live in the townships don't have the benefit of those kind of uh, mechanisms. There are vigilante groups, but the police and others are often scared to go into these areas. And especially for women or other people who are seen as uh, vulnerable, they are targeted for crime, for violence. And foreigners fall into that as a group that is easily targeted. They're often seen as almost as demons, as someone who is there to undermine the local community. The fact that they can't get bank accounts so they also carry their money and cash on them makes them particularly vulnerable. The violence you see is, is in part expression of the anger. It's in part political symbolism, though, an effort to send a message to the government that we want these people gone. And for people who are dispossessed and do not feel that they have a voice, this is one way in which they feel that they can get some attention. And I suppose if we look at South Africa, the inadequacies, the, the legacy of the apartheid era, the inadequacies of the educational system, the economic breakdowns in some ways that take place, and a government that's trying to appease voters. So there are motivating factors Mm. in all of these cases. Do you see any others in South Africa, any other factors, or have I? Well, of course, the the sort of broad issues of of economic inequality, of of political, people not feeling that they have political representation of the anger, of the disillusionment with with the government and the new order are at play. It's a deeply fragmented society, um, but I think there are also reasons for hope. I think there are South Africans, new generation of South Africans and older generation who said, look, we didn't fight to become a a society that turns in on itself or in on those among us. And and I think we're seeing this across Europe most recently with, with people offering assistance to the refugees, even as the governments are are trying to round them up. We see it in the United States with people bringing water uh, out into the desert for immigrants. There is a humanity there. And uh, somehow, despite all of the violence of South Africa's past and present, there is still, I think, a a sense that they could do better. And and there were people who will fight for that. And you're right in the center of it. Your research is really doing amazingly relevant work. That spills over beyond South Africa. What you're doing is relevant to all these other countries we've been talking about. Tell me just a little bit about you using teams of research assistance. You're looking at countries outside of South Africa, Mm -hmm. and you're looking at the phenomenon internally in South Africa. Yeah, I think what we're trying to get at is an understanding of how people live, what they want, and who they interact with, and how they achieve their objectives. And so we've been doing work in whether it's with Somali refugees or migrants in in Nairobi, uh, people displaced from violence in in Uganda, Mozambique, Congo, South Africa, trying to understand how people move. You know, it's a a compelling subject, but it also raises, at a moral level, but it also raises very real issues about 
what is the nature of society? How do we understand citizenship, both as a, a lived practice, but as a, a kind of ethics? What does it mean to belong in this era? There's been these discussions about the Saskia Assassins, the Manuel Castells, talking about the kind of the globalized elite. What we're seeing is a kind of globalization from below in Africa, exactly. and we're really trying to get a, a, a view onto what's going on. Well, thank you. This has been a very interesting discussion. Maybe we could go out on another of your favorite musicians, Harry Belafonte. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with Harry Belafonte. My parents loved him. And this song, Tula Tula, is a, it's a lullaby that he, I presume, learned from his then wife, Miriam Makeba, yeah. and uh, recorded. It's, it's a song that many people have recorded, but of course, he has a magical voice. And the fact that you have a West Indian singing this, this traditional South African song also is part of the benefit of, of globalization and migration. Wonderful. I've been speaking today with Lauren Lando, specialist on migration, immigration. Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Tula, mama, 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 tula,